thing, goddess, of the ruinous wrath of Peleus' son Achilles, that inflicted woes without number upon the Achaeans, hurled forth to Hades many strong souls of warriors, and rendered their bodies prey for the dogs, for all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished. Sing from when they too first stood in conflict, Atreus' son, lord of men, and godlike Achilles. Beginning a podcast on Homer without hearing the famous and powerful first lines of the Iliad would surely be a poor way to start. Why are these words famous, and why have stories about one man's rage and another man's cunning survived through to our modern era? What lessons can be learned from these stories of the distant past, and what can they teach us about ourselves today? Welcome to the Homeric Epic Podcast, where I, your host, will attempt to shed light into the wine-dark depths of Homer's literary sea. I am not a historian, or even a literature major, just an avid classics fan, and a Phil Homer, that is, a lover of Homer, if you will. I've taught myself ancient Greek well enough to translate Homer, and taken several courses on the classics during my time at university. The pandemic lockdowns may have also been what catalyzed this, as I suddenly had plenty of time to read and the used bookstore near me was always full of books from ancient writers. I first read the Iliad four years ago while riding the subway every day, and one thought stuck out in my mind. Why is Achilles so angry? The motivation behind his rage is actually nearly lost on us today, as well as the immense scale of his anger. As I dug further and further into the Iliad and the world of Homer, I found answers. Indeed, the more I dug, the more I found. I'm not the first to notice this about Homer. There's an old quote by a professor of classical studies that I think sums it up well. Homer is a world. I believe this phrase to be an excellent description of the extent to which you can lose yourself in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Let me put it this way. Imagine you've decided to go to the beach, and when you arrive, the tide is far out and the waves are breaking a mile away. The view is grand, and the beach stretches far in either direction but it lacks resolution, and you can't pick out many details yet. It's simply too massive. As you approach the flat stretch of sand, you begin to notice things. A shell, a dead fish, different types of seaweed. The cycle of life and death is readily apparent from your casual observation of the shoreline. When you explore further, you reach a tidal area full of life. There are craggy rocks that appear ancient and weathered, birds nesting on top, and barnacles crusted below. In the pools of seawater, you can see anemones, schools of small fish, and, if you have a keen eye, maybe even an elusive octopus. Every stone you turn over is hiding a different crab, and there are endless numbers of crevices and cracks to peer into. You could spend a lifetime examining every nook and cranny of the beach, and the more you look, the more you would find, such as it is with Homer. People have been studying the Iliad and the Odyssey for over 2,000 years, and each generation has found something different that speaks to them. And the search is far from over, as arguably the most important development in Homeric scholarship occurred less than 100 years ago. We really are on the forefront of understanding these poems. As this is the first episode of the podcast, I'd like to go over the scope, the goals I have for it, and an introduction on Homer and the Homeric epics to help preface our studies together. As a classical history fan myself, I noticed that many podcasts touch on the Iliad and the Odyssey, mentioning how they were foundational to ancient Greek society, 
and our Western literary tradition today. You may have heard someone use the phrase foundations of Western literature or greatest works of Western literature when describing the two epics. These are big claims that are often mentioned in passing simply because they would take too long to expand upon. That's fair enough, but are such claims true? What I aim to demonstrate with this podcast is that they are. I want to show you why these poems are considered classic and to prove to you that they are still just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. What I really want to convince you of is that you should read Homer. I hope to showcase the artistry and the beauty of these stories in a way that may not be immediately apparent to a general audience. My goal is that this podcast will be a helpful companion to assist people when reading the two epic poems. One of the courses I took during my studies was titled Greek and Latin Epic, where we read the Iliad, Odyssey, and the Aeneid chapter by chapter and discussed their contents with the instructor. This sort of guided reading helped immensely in illuminating the text, enabling me to make connections that I would never have noticed on my own. One thing I should mention early on, due to the highly interwoven and prophetic nature of Greek mythology and of the Iliad and the Odyssey, I will be spoiling the ending while discussing many of the early parts of the book. But don't let this turn you away. In fact, many times the text itself simply states how the story will end. And while this is very different from how modern stories usually work, I will try to demonstrate how it actually enhances the tale. But let me go over the scope for the podcast, so that in a few years I can see how far off I was. Firstly, I'll be covering the Iliad in depth, chapter by chapter, discussing relevant themes, imagery, characterization, and moments of particular beauty. Once we finish the Iliad, we will, of course, move forward chronologically in mythological time to the Odyssey. There'll be many different digressions on interesting passages, interpretations of the text, histories of the text, and anything that may not be immediately apparent to the first-time reader. I want to show you the beauty of these stories in depth and with a level of critical consideration derived from multiple readings and devoted study. I must clarify, though, I will not be covering Greek mythology in general. I will assume a beginner's level of background knowledge in Greek myth, for example, knowledge of major gods, their symbols and past, creation stories, etc. This is because Greek mythology is covered very excellently in other podcasts, so please feel free to brush up using one of them. In any case, the Homeric epics are rather well-contained in terms of Greek myth, so this shouldn't be too big of a problem. But I will go over relevant mythology to the Trojan War in this initial episode. When it arises, I will place the story in the context of the larger mythological tradition of the epic cycle. More on that to come. As indeed there are many references to events that occur before and after the Iliad and Odyssey, which greatly enhance the story when they are known. Luckily, the Homeric epics are, in a way, less fantastical than the rest of Greek myth. Nobody turns into a tree or a flower, or tries to sleep with their mother, or is born out of their father's head. There are some talking horses, and a few giants that eat people, but we can manage that, right? One of the most common questions I hear about the Iliad and Odyssey, but more so the Iliad, is people asking, yeah, but is it true? Like, did it really happen? And this is a natural question to ask. Modern society places a great importance on verifying the truth of how events occurred in the past, and this desire for veracity extends to mythology as well. If an event from the past cannot be sufficiently verified, it's often dismissed and just forgotten about. 
In terms of the historicity of the Iliad, that is, whether they actually occurred as written, much scholarly and archaeological work has been done on this exact topic. In fact, it's a very interesting story in and of itself, involving one man's dream and just a bit of dynamite. But instead of answering this question right now, I'll have to go more in-depth into it on its own. Though I will leave you with this one thought. The Iliad and the Odyssey are true, and they are history, but they did not happen. But enough of this first episode stuff. Let's climb down into our well-balanced ships and set sail to strong-built Troy. What are we dealing with here? What are these poems, and how did we get them? To start us off gently, the Homeric epics are poems written in a mix of ancient Greek dialects, albeit mostly Ionian, and transcribed sometime between 800 to 700 BCE. Despite this narrow, in air quotes, range of 100 years, there is a glaring problem with providing a date for their creation. This is due to the massive body of evidence suggesting that the poems existed hundreds of years before they were written down because they were originally performed orally from memory. For reference, the Iliad is about 15,000 lines long, and the Odyssey is about 12,000 lines long. This incredible feat seems impossible, but we know for a fact that it was done. One major piece of evidence supporting this is that writing wasn't introduced to ancient Greece until 800 BCE. No writing means it has to be held in memory. Strangely enough, between both poems, there's only one mention of writing, which occurs in a flashback in Book 6 of the Iliad. Taking this lack of writing into account when dating the Iliad's transcription, we can assume that it was transcribed when the Greeks were just introduced to writing by the Phoenicians around 800 BCE. This coupled with the fact that the poems themselves talk of an era highly unlike that of when they were recorded, and mention cities long since deserted by the time of early Greek history, suggests that they come from a much more ancient tradition. Linguistic evidence also shows that certain words and grammatical structures that are commonplace in Homer were no longer in use by the time they could have been written down. There's also even more surviving evidence of bards being hired to sing the Homeric poems at festivals. So all of this points to there having been a pre-existing oral version of the Homeric epics. But if these arguments are not enough to convince you that the poems were originally performed from memory, then we only need to look at the monumental work of Milman Perry and Albert Lord. Milman Perry was a classicist who theorized that the frequent use of character epithets were not used for narrative purposes in the Homeric poems, but instead were mainly used for metrical purposes. But wait, what the heck are epithets? First-time readers of the Iliad and the Odyssey are often struck by the repetition of phrases accompanying certain objects and people. For example, ships are always swift ship or hollow ships, and Achaeans are always strong grieve. Hector is often manslaughtering Hector, or Hector, breaker of horses, and so on. These words or phrases preceding a noun are called epithets, and they often represent the key aspect or essence of the thing being mentioned. It is important to note that epithets are not nicknames, and not meant to distinguish the noun from other nouns. The term hollow ships is not meant to distinguish a specific type of ship, but meant to emphasize their function. These ships carry soldiers. But now back to Milman Perry. His theory was that these phrases were not important for the story. It didn't really matter if Odysseus was cunning or wily in this scene. It was more important to fill the line with the correct meter. For example, if the poet has just described a hero performing a great deed, and they have three feet left in the line, 
they can select from their list of epithets for that hero and use the one that allows the rhythm of the line to be completed correctly. I'll go more into detail on the poetic style of Homer in a moment. Completion of the meter is not the only use of epithet, though. Many are repeated and used at specific times to create a dramatic effect. Several characters share the same epithets, and some epithets are used only under certain circumstances. But Milman Perry argued that completing the meter was their main use, and that they served as memory aids for improvised live performances. To prove such a claim, he had to do some field work. Unfortunately for him, no one has performed Homer in such a way for around 2,400 years. But luckily for him, though, there was a living oral poetic tradition alive in Yugoslavia where bards produced tremendously long poems on the fly from memory. So Perry and his assistant, Albert Lord, set out to Yugoslavia to study these bards in the wild, and what they found was remarkable. In the outskirts of Bosnia, in remote villages, they recorded thousands of hours of performances from illiterate bards called Guslar. The Guslar they interviewed were able to perform incredibly long songs. The greatest bard could recite a poem of 13,000 lines, which took over five days, completely from memory, without the aid of any writing. They noticed many similarities in structure and technique between these bards and what we read in Homer, including character epithets, type scenes, and ring composition. The Guslar were able to provide many fascinating examples of how the epics of Homer could have evolved over time. In one experiment, they asked a bard to perform a song, and then a few days later, he was asked to perform it again, exactly the same. Comparing his second performance to his first, Perry and Lord found that there were slight differences between the two in terms of word order and line structure. When they asked the Gussler about this, he was emphatic that he performed it exactly the same. They hypothesized that without literacy, the concept of sameness takes on a looser meaning. Since the story of what the Gussler had performed was the same, he didn't really care about a few different lines. This is cited as a mechanism for how the poems evolved over time. It's now accepted that the Iliad and the Odyssey were part of a long tradition of performing oral poets that told and retold these epic tales for hundreds of years, each one altering the content slightly, polishing this part or that part, until the version as we have it was written down. Perry and Lord's work showed that there wasn't so much a Homer as there were many Homers who influenced and shaped the poems. There is still the very puzzling question of who committed the poem to writing. Poems are very long, and yet strikingly uniform in their composition and content. Many scholars think there is still some room for masterful genius in the oral creation process. Even with the certainty of a single author in question, I'll still be referring to the general process or singular author that created the poems as Homer. It's just easier to talk about them that way, instead of repeating each time, the oral performative process by which the Iliad and Odyssey were created and then later transcribed by a group or singular person. Far too much of a mouthful for a podcast. Besides all this scholarly stuff, tradition tells us the poems were created by a near-mythical figure named, well, Homer. He's believed to hail from Ionia in the modern-day west coast of Turkey, as the epics are written mostly in the Ionic Greek dialect. But no less than seven different cities claim to be his hometown, including Smyrna, the island of Chios, Rhodes, Colophon, Salamis, and heck, even Athens and Argos. However, most of the evidence points to Smyrna or Chios as the most likely candidates. This is where things get tricky. 
We are sure that the poems were originally oral, but this doesn't help to explain both the poem's length and coherent artistry. If it was originally separate smaller stories that were stitched together to form a larger one, then why do they fit together so well? Did some group or person compile and edit them when they were transcribed? This may have been the case, actually. There are a few times in ancient history when we are certain that the epics were transcribed. One such time is during the 6th century BC in the reign of the tyrant of Athens, Pisistratus. He declared that there must be a standard version of the Homeric epics, and this standard version is the only form that was allowed to be recited at the Pan-Athenaic Festival. Think of it as their version of a city fair. The implication of this is that there must have been several versions in circulation, and that Pisistratus wanted to return back to the Homeric roots. There is also a very interesting marginal note on one copy of the Iliad that states Pisistratus added Book 10, sometimes called the Dolonea, to the story at this time. Well, this could help explain the strangeness of this book in the epic, as indeed it seems very out of place, it takes place in the middle of the night. There is evidence from earlier of Dolon and his Dolonea on ancient Greek vases. We'll talk more about Dolon and the night mission of Odysseus and Diomedes when we reach Book 10 of the Iliad. Another fascinating theory is that Pisistratus' real aim with creating this standardized version was to include a bit of contemporary political propaganda into the Iliad. There's a comment by the Roman geographer Strabo that records a claim that either Pisistratus or Solon, the original lawgiver of Athens, edited Homer and changed the 12 ships from Salamis to be listed under control of the Athenians, thus proving that Athens owned Salamis during the time of the Trojan War. This fact was then used in arbitration against Salamis to justify Athenian occupation of the island. This sort of dastardly political maneuvering is par for the course for the ancient Greeks, but it just goes to show Homer is powerful stuff. The next major stop of the Homeric epics on the temporal road to the present is with the scholars of the Library of Alexandria in Egypt in the 3rd century BC. Now remember, Alexandria was founded by Alexander the Great, who himself was a huge fan of the Iliad, so it's only fitting that his library there kept up the tradition. This group curated and compiled the text into the Vulgate, an edited edition of the poems, carefully removing lines not attributed to Homer in an attempt to let the true Homeric lines shine through. They were also the first people to divide both stories into 24 chapters, one for each letter of the Greek alphabet. The Alexandrian scholars edited Homeric texts based on seven goals, consistency of content, consistency of style, lack of repetitions, quality, logic, morality, and what they called explaining Homer from Homer. In other words, using the text to explain the text. Aristarchus, one Alexandrian scholar, created an annotated version of Homer's work using these criteria, but in his version, he provided explanations in the margin for why he removed certain lines from the text, along with comments and justifications for the removals. This left us with a completely intact version, and it's virtually identical to the version we have today. These Alexandrian versions also contained hundreds of useful marginal notes called scolia, with little comments about the text and translation of obscure terms, and these have been extremely helpful in our understanding of the poems. From there, it was transcribed by monks until the first official version was published in Florence in 1489. And it just so happens that a young man by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli was 20 years old at the time, and he read this new book that came out called the Iliad. 
He mentions it several times in his most famous work, The Prince, when discussing the principles of political strategy. Now, I could bring up hundreds of more examples of the Iliad's influence throughout history, and yeah, you know what, someday I will. But now's not the time. Now that we know how the poems were composed, let's talk a little bit about their content. As I mentioned, these were originally oral poems, and this oral composition method played an enormous part in the development of the epics. Before they were written down, and for a while afterwards, a bard called a rhapsode would sing the poems and play a lyre to a live audience. Ancient Greek was a tonal language, much like modern Mandarin with its inflections, so the rhythm of the verse came alive in a melodic way while the bard was performing it. This idea of a live performance of the poem helps explain many of its intricacies, so I encourage you to keep it in your mind as you read. The Homeric epics are written in an unrhymed, stress-based poetry called dactylic hexameter. The word dactylos in Greek means finger, and is called as such because each metrical foot contains one long, stressed syllable and two short, unstressed syllables, just as our fingers have one long and two short segments. If the word dactyl sounds familiar, it's because it's also the base for the name pterodactyl, which means wing fingers. Isn't Greek amazing? I'll try to keep the digressions on word etymology in ancient Greek to a minimum, for your sake and for the sake of the people I regularly interact with. But no promises. The dactylic hexameter verse form contains six metrical feet, where each foot can be either a dactyl, long, short, short, or a spondy, long, long. Each line is mathematical in nature, meaning it can only contain six feet, and each foot can only be a dactyl or a spondy. There's one additional rule, and several other soft rules. The firm rule is that each line must end in a spondy. This resets the rhythm, so to speak, and indicates that the poet will be starting a new line, preparing the listener for a new measure. Thus, the end of the line and the beginning of the next can form only one of two patterns, long, 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 or long, 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 short, short. Another rule, which is very rarely broken, is that there is a dactyl in the fifth foot. Again, prepare the listener for the next line with a predictable pattern of long, short, short, long, long, which acts as a sort of closing rhythm to the line and is generally pleasant to the ear. At first, this structure seems rigid and inflexible. What if the perfect word should come next, but it doesn't fit the meter? What if you need to say someone's name in a line, but you've run out of room? Luckily, ancient Greek has many less restrictions on word order when compared to English. For example, in English, we must use the order subject, verb, object. I love Homer. But ancient Greek is what's called a synthetic language, which essentially means that the word order is less important because we augment the words to designate their function within the sentence. So I love Homer in ancient Greek would translate literally as Homer I love or love I Homer. Homeric poetry uses this aspect of the language to great effect for dramatic purposes. A fantastic example is in line 7 of the Iliad, the last line of the first sentence, where the poet is laying out the entire plot. Translating it into English, it would be read as both the son of Atreus, lord of men, and godlike Achilles. It's a bit of a mouthful in English. But in the Greek, the poet can use the word order to highlight the two warriors' extreme disagreement by placing their names at the beginning and the end of the line. 
something that's just more difficult when we translate it through English grammar. This difference in word order between Greek and English is a challenge for translators, and oftentimes results in difficult-to-read English because the translator wants to preserve as much of the original poetry as possible. Luckily, many different translations of the Iliad and Odyssey are available, some more poetic, retaining the line numbers and sticking close to the Greek, but missing out on the descriptive richness due to word economy. And others read like a novel, preserving the sentences of the Greek and retaining the powerful imagery and language but losing out on the poetry and word order. Choice is ultimately up to you. For much of my study for this podcast on the Iliad, I've used Caroline Alexander's fantastic new translation. She's the first woman to publish a translation of the Iliad, and it instantly became my favorite, so go show her some love. For a first-time reading of the Odyssey, the Robert Fagel's translation is an excellent place to start. As we are reading poetry, after all, and especially poetry that was originally intended for a live performance, I'd like to touch on how the poet uses the sound of words to bring the poem to life. Ancient Greek as a language focuses more heavily on vowels than English, with more long vowels separated by only one consonant. Unlike English, where sentences have long sections of consonants separated by few vowels. The effect of this lends well to dramatizing certain emotional scenes with long, drawn-out vowels, mimicking laments and anguished cries. For example, Tu pain ki Note how every syllable is long, making the line entirely spondaic. This is appropriate, as Achilles is calling ever upon the hapless spirit of Patroclus. The scene is laden with emotion, and the poet wishes to linger here, slowing the verse, but also making us hear Achilles' emotions. There are equivalent scenes with much harsher language when battle is described, and faster, breathier lines when the poet describes the blasts of wind that tear at Odysseus' sails. Homer shows himself to be an expert with onomatopoeia, and the diction of the poem reflects this. I'll bring up some of these examples when we reach them as this is when the emotional and auditory effect combine in their proper fashion. The last thing I would like to mention about the two epics regarding their poetry is to highlight their structure. Both the poems have a well-defined chiastic structure, where the events in the story form a ring. This structure is difficult to see at first, and is more apparent in the Iliad than the Odyssey. But essentially, for both poems, events in the beginning have mere images of themselves on the second half of the story. As a quick example, the Lotophagoi, or Lotus Eaters, described in Odyssey Book 9, are mirrored with the Sirens in Book 12. Both are seen as foreign and exotic in the Greek worldview, and the Lotus probably being a metaphor for opium, and the Sirens being a metaphor for exotic foreign women. More importantly, both of these trials are offering the same thing to Odysseus and his men, the opportunity to forget, forget their sadness and sorrows, but also to forget their home. Likewise, the Iliad begins with a father bringing ransom for his daughter, and ends with a different father bringing ransom for the body of his son. There are numerous parallels like this, and each one is as full of rich juxtaposition as the last, but we'll just have to delve into each one as we come to it. Let us now turn to the mythology of Homer. The Homeric epics are part of a larger story well known to ancient listeners called the Epic Cycle, which consisted of eight epic poems detailing the judgment of Paris, the sack of Troy, and the Nostoi, or homecomings of the soldiers. I like to think of the Trojan War beginning very early in Greek mythology, or at least the seeds of it, that is. 
There's a fragment from the first poem in the epic cycle, the Cypria, that reads, There was a time when the countless tribes of men, though wide dispersed, oppressed the surface of the deep-bosomed earth. And Zeus saw it and had pity, and in his wise heart resolved to relieve the all-nurturing earth of men by causing the great struggle of the Ilian War, that the load of death might empty the world. And so the heroes were slain in Troy, and the plan of Zeus came to pass. That phrase at the end of the fragment, and the plan of Zeus came to pass, is very similar to a line in the Iliad, and the will of Zeus was moving towards its end. This signifies some unity of intention between the Zeus depicted in the Cypria and the one in the Iliad. I also like this as a root cause of the war, and not solely the judgment of Paris, as it frames the whole thing in a larger cosmic scale that is, in a way, more justified, I suppose. The second thing that this fragment says to me is that it was going to be a bloody, hellish war, as its sole purpose was to kill people. And this is exactly what we observe in the poems. Zeus's dislike of humanity is well documented in myth, so beginning a war just to reduce their numbers is well within his character. This early hint of the war is often overlooked in other Greek myths, or even the epics themselves, but it was known enough in ancient times to be mentioned by the playwright Euripides. Another early hint of the upcoming Trojan War is in the ancient Greek play Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus. In it, the enchained titan Prometheus, punished for saving humanity from Zeus's wrath, is visited by several mythical figures. Prometheus hints to them that he knows something that will soon give him power over Zeus. The chorus of Oceanid nymphs asks him what it is. He doesn't reveal his secret in the play, instead being crushed by an earthquake sent by Zeus, but the audience knew the secret. Prometheus, the god of forethought, whose name comprises pro, meaning forward, and manthano, meaning intelligent, knew that whoever married the sea nymph Thetis would bear a son much greater than his father. For Zeus to avoid being overthrown by a possible son with Thetis, he marries her off to a mortal to have a nice, safe mortal baby with. The immortal Thetis wed Peleus of Thea, who would become the father of godlike Achilles. Peleus himself was a hero and has many myths about him, but his son Achilles surpassed him by far. If we jump forward in mythological time and come to the traditional cause of the war, we find ourselves at the wedding of Peleus and Thetis. Since this was a mortal marrying an immortal, the guest list was quite impressive. But since many of the Greek immortals are embodiments of natural forces or emotions, there were also some gods not on the invite list. Because why would you invite a god whose literal name was Strife? In any case, Eris, the goddess of Strife, upset at being the only divinity not invited to the wedding, created the golden apple of discord, which read Te Caliste, or For the Fairest, on and hurled it over the roof of the house into the center courtyard. Well, three goddesses, Hera, Aphrodite, and Athena, all thought that it should belong to them, and were not willing to compromise. Zeus declared that he himself shouldn't adjudicate, being the wife of Hera, and biased, that is, but he would appoint a mortal to do so. I'll take a break here and mention that this is all part of Zeus's plan to begin the war, as he likely already had the mortal picked out. There was a town called Troy, which had pissed off some gods generations earlier, and was overdue for a catastrophe. And there was a forgotten prince named Paris, who, A, had some poetic prophecies foretold for him, and B, was a young man, and so easily and predictably bribed with exactly what young men want, which is a beautiful woman. 
After it was decided that Paris would adjudicate, the three goddesses went to him with their offers. Hera, queen of the gods, offered him dominion over all of Europe and Asia. Athena offered him prowess in battle and wisdom. But only Aphrodite knew who she was dealing with, and offered the young man the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen, the daughter of Tyndareus. This is where things get interesting, because of course, Helen is already married to King of Sparta, Menelaus. And as if kidnapping the Queen of Sparta was not enough of a reason for all-out war, all of Helen's suitors, which comprised basically every eligible king in the land, had sworn the so-called Oath of Tyndareus, which bound them to service in order to rescue Helen should she be kidnapped, because, well, she had already been kidnapped a few times. So this sets the stage for the epic cycle. Fast forward through about nine years of pillaging and plundering, and we come to the beginning of the Iliad, the action of which comprises only 54 days in a 10-year war. What about the Odyssey, then? This story happens after the sack of Troy, and is among one of the Nostoi, or homecoming stories of the Trojan war heroes, being the second last book in the epic cycle. Odysseus's Nostoi covers the 10-year period after the war, in which many of Odysseus' comrades have already made it home, yet he is still absent. The reason the Nostoi of the Greeks is compelling is because of the sack of Troy itself. Many of the soldiers committed heinous crimes towards the gods during the war and didn't learn their lesson, and so as divine punishment, they had a really, really hard time getting home. Some of these Nostoi are covered in the Odyssey as a comparison to Odysseus' return and to heighten the pathos of the entire war itself. You may ask, though, 10 years? Isn't that a long time to cover in the story? The answer is, not exactly. Gone now is the linear story of the Iliad, where the plot marches forward and our emotions twist and turn and build into a final climax of reconciliation. No, now we have flashbacks, within flashbacks. And the person telling the story might be lying? In fact, is anything Odysseus say true? Do we even know who's telling the story? It's really great stuff. The mythology of the Odyssey is a bit more grandiose than the Iliad, but still takes place in the same world, with the same gods and goddesses, just with more monsters. Indeed, the monsters are usually what the Odyssey is known for, and believe me, there will be much to say on them. The Odyssey is also a more personal story, and contains many customs that the ancient Greeks themselves strictly observed. This shows how closely the ancient Greeks believed themselves to be the characters in these stories. They weren't just good reading, they were the foundations of their culture. We learn many important details about the Trojan War in the Odyssey, all of them told in hindsight. Readers are often disappointed to hear that the famous Trojan horse not included in the Iliad, but luckily it is referenced in the Odyssey. We also hear of different quarrels between the characters, like that of the quarrel between Achilles and Odysseus, or the more famous one between Ajax and Odysseus over the arms of Achilles. We also get the chance to see some of the main characters from the Iliad when Odysseus visits the underworld, including Achilles himself, Agamemnon, and Ajax. It's quite interesting to see how they have changed since they died, especially when Odysseus talks to Achilles. For these reasons, I do believe that it is helpful to read the Iliad before the Odyssey. Don't let that deter you. You can certainly read each epic on its own, but there are some subtle ways that the Odyssey plays off its predecessor. Interestingly. The Odyssey actually avoids covering any incident that's covered in the Iliad. This has been noticed by scholars, and it's referred to as Munro's Law. 
and is a sign that the author of the Odyssey, whoever that may be, was acutely aware of all the goings-on of the Iliad, and chose to sideset them to avoid overlap between the two poems. The Odyssey has also arguably made a larger impact upon modern literature than the Iliad, with such works as The Hobbit, Don Quixote, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, all drawing different levels of inspiration from the classic adventure tale. It could be that the Odyssey is a secretive, elusive tale, with many twists and turns and character motivations constantly up for interpretation. Or perhaps just the grandeur of the voyage, the fantastical creatures, and the feats that Odysseus overcomes has made it leave such a mark on literature. In any case, the Odyssey looms large in the collective imagination of adventure tales, and we'll dissect the references to it and the reason why. Now, I've talked a lot about the two stories as Homer's epics, implying that they are similar because of their shared creative process. But in actuality, the poems are very different. In a lot of ways, completely opposite to one another. If we look at their most basic differences, the Iliad has numerous leading characters who at different times fill the main stage of the story, while the Odyssey is content to view one character at a time. As a war story, the Iliad contains numerous long, extended battle scenes where people die in gruesome ways, and it has very many specific moments of valor for these different characters. The Odyssey, on the other hand, which of course takes place after the war, has very little combat whatsoever. The vast majority of the Iliad is told from a present tense, third-person omniscient point of view, which means we can see inside each character's head. A significant portion of the Odyssey is told in the past tense, third-person perspective, meaning we can only see inside Odysseus's head. Each story uses its perspective to great effect, but the difference is worth noting. Iliad, in general, is a poem of action and bravery and war, while the Odyssey is a poem of cunning and intrigue in undefined circumstances. The Iliad wears its heart on its sleeve, and the Odyssey is murky and secretive. The Odyssey is the introspective epic, and the Iliad is the extrospective one. Even the two poem's main characters could not be less alike. For example, Achilles is quoted in the Iliad speaking to Odysseus and saying, Hateful as the gate of Hades is the man who speaks one thing but hides another in his heart. Achilles, the central character and driver of the Iliad, is brash. He speaks his mind without regard for the consequences. He despises liars as he does the gates of Hades, which by this he means death itself. Odysseus, on the other hand, could not agree with this statement less. Lying is his default state. He lies to everyone he meets, goddesses, monsters, even his own family. He is the polutropon man, which is the first adjective used to describe him in the Odyssey, and translates literally as many turns. He is the many-turned man because his mind is always twisting and turning, figuring out how to gain an advantage in every situation, and mostly figuring out how to lie, completely unlike straight-talking Achilles. As I've said before, don't feel the need to read the epics in order. You can certainly read the Odyssey before the Iliad, but just be aware that they're both very different beasts, and a lot of people prefer one over the other. To wrap up this inaugural episode, I'd like to go over the three main goals I have for the podcast. Firstly, I want this podcast to be the first stop for newcomers when reading the Homeric epics, to help them gain an appreciation for the Iliad and the Odyssey that they may not attain otherwise. Secondly, I want to prove to you that these poems deserve the titles of greatest works of literature, to show you why they have survived for 2,700 years and why they're still relevant today. 
Lastly, I want to convince you to read Homer again and again. With that, I'll wrap things up. Thank you for finishing this first episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can follow my Substack at homericepicpodcast.substack.com. There you'll find the show notes, sources, and other cool things I find on the Iliad and the Odyssey. I hope you join me in the next episode, where we'll cover book one of the Iliad in fine detail. Until then, erostai akustoi philoi. Philoi.